I invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. And as you turn there this morning, I wonder if you've ever thought about how many hours of content are on different streaming companies. How many shows, movies, documentaries are out there? Well, on Amazon Prime, there's about 31,000 hours. Netflix, 39,000. Hulu, 40,000 or more hours of content. That means you could go home today, make a big bowl of popcorn, sit on your couch, and you could watch Netflix for four straight years. And you would still not get through all the content. Just think how just 15 years ago, how much space it would take to have that many VHS tapes. <laughs> but we know that when we're streaming different content online, right, it's important to know what we're watching so that we can make the best use of our time. There's a difference between watching a children's movie and a horror movie. And it's important when we come to Netflix, but it's of ultimate importance when we come to God's word. We're going to take a brief pause in our series in the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 37. And when we come to a new text in the Bible, there's at least three questions that we want to ask. What is the structure? What is the surrounding? And what is the significance? What is the structure? What is the surrounding? And what is the significance? And when we arrive here in Genesis 37, verses 11 to 36, and we ask the question, what is the structure? We realize that this is a narrative story. Now, it's not like a fairy tale. This is a true story that we're going to divide into four scenes or acts, which are basically divided by four simple paragraphs. When we ask the question, what is the surrounding, we want to think about the context of this passage before we read it. And many of our Bibles, if we look down in Genesis 37, if you look at the very beginning of, of chapter 37, thankfully the ESV editors added a little heading that says, Joseph's Dreams. Now, if you grew up in the church, maybe you're familiar with this, or if this might even be one of your first times reading the Bible, I want to remind us what is happening here. Now, when I was a child, I learned off something called a flannel graph. Anyone else in the room a flannel graph? Well, I have a flannel graph up here for us this morning. And in Genesis chapter 37, we have a boy named Joseph. We see him at the bottom. He was the favorite son of his father. That's why his brothers right above him were not happy. That's why they're frowning. He was the favorite son. His dad gave him a robe of many colors. And God gave him dreams, which are represented by the bubbles here at the top. They're explained in this chapter that one day, not only would he reign over Egypt, but that meant that he was going to reign over his brothers. And they were not very happy about that. More on that later. The third question we ask, what is the significance and well, we're going to answer that question later in the sermon. So we're going to pick up here in Genesis chapter 37, verse 11. This is scene one of this narrative, the beginning of the story. This is right after he told his brothers that God had given him a dream that he would one day reign over them. This is God's word, Genesis 37, starting in verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock near Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. 
So he said, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Jothan. Now we see here in this text that Joseph, he completes the important saying that he did the next best thing in life. He did full obedience. Now let's think about the situation which Joseph found himself in here. He didn't ask to be born into the family that he was born in. He didn't ask to be the favorite son And he didn't ask God to give him the dreams that one day he would reign over the whole Egypt. But what he did find himself in was a situation where his brothers not only were jealous of him, but they hated him, yet he still did the next best thing. His father said, come, I will send you to them. He was sending Joseph to his brothers who did not like him very much. But Joseph responds in obedience of mouth, in what he said, and in action. What does he say here in scene one? His dad calls him. He says, here I am. But he doesn't just say, here I am and not go. He actually goes. For you and I know what it's like when someone tells us something, maybe if you're a child in the room, and your parents tell you to do something, and you say, sure, dad, I'll do it. But then there's no action behind it. Or we know what it's like, even adults in this room, where someone tells us to do something and we go and do it, but then we badmouth the person who told us. Both are sins. Yet Joseph finds himself in this situation and he does the next best thing. He does full obedience. But I also don't want us to miss something that happens here. His father told him to go to Shechem. So he goes and he looks for his brothers and he didn't find them. So if he was looking to do the bare minimum of obedience, he could have turned around, went back up to his dad and said, hey, dad, went to Shechem, you know, my brothers who hate me that you sent me to, couldn't find them. And right, that would have been checking the box of obedience. But he knew that wasn't actually what his dad wanted. His dad wanted him to find his brothers. So a guy finds him wandering around. He says, oh, no, they're in Dothan. That's about 15 miles away. That would be like going out these back doors, hitting a right on Herbert Road and going 15 miles. That would take you to the Ohio PA state line. But he goes and he finds them because he knows that he was called to do the next best thing, full obedience. But the story is not over yet. We now go to the rising action, verses 18 to 24. They, meaning the brothers, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. So how did we get here? How did we get to Joseph being in a pit, likely about 10 feet wide, 16 feet deep, Likely it was muddy, it smelled like mud, it was used for holding water, but there was no water in it. How did we get to the fact that his brothers threw him in here? Well, this didn't happen overnight. Alone here in Genesis 37, I invite you to look back at verse 4. We see how the sin was spreading in his brother's life. Genesis 37 verse 4, speaking of the brothers, it said, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. A little bit later, verse 11, it says, and his brothers were jealous of him. A little bit later in verse 20, it said, let us kill him. And then they wanted to lie about it. And then in verse 24, they took his clothes off and they threw him into a pit. This reminds us of the often overlooked but very important principle to kill the sin in our life today before it spreads tomorrow. Another way to say this, that sin today that is not dealt with usually causes more sin tomorrow. This sin was growing and growing and growing. And if we were to take a step back even further, answering the question, what is the surrounding of this text? And we were to think of the narrative of Genesis as a whole, let's think about Joseph's father for a second, Jacob. Do you remember the history of Jacob? Well, Jacob was the second-born son of his father, Isaac. He wasn't supposed to get the birthright. But what did he do? He lied he pretended to be his brother Esau, and he got the birthright from his dad. The sin that the father committed has now spread to sin that the sons are committing. And the point here is not generational sin, but the point here is that sin is serious. Sin is like a small snowball that you can fit in your hand that you put at the top of a hill and you push it down a snowy hill and what happens? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Sin, especially secret sin, sin that these brothers were committing here, sins that you and I commit, usually the longer that sin goes unchecked, the larger it becomes. And it leads us this morning to ask the question, is there sin in our lives that we are leaving unchecked? Is there secret sin in our lives that we feel like others don't even know about? And this reminds me of a quote from John Piper where he says, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures and their addictions and their shortcomings. And I see so little war he said, make war. If you wonder how to make war, go to the manual. Don't just bellyache about failures. Make war on our sin. We're reminded here in scene two of this story that sin is serious. And if we don't take sin and make sure that we are asking forgiveness for it, it will hide under the covers and it will grow 
And it will often come out at moments where we least expect it. The sin that the brothers committed, hate that led to jealousy, that led to desire to kill, which led to abandonment without clothes in a pit. This is a good place for us just to remember two things. God knows the sins that we commit, both that are public and that are private. We might think our spouses don't know about the sin, but God does. We might think our parents don't know about the sin, but God does. We're also reminded here as we consider this, that we must remember that our kids are listening and watching. It's true today that there are things that are taught and there are also things that are caught. And I believe that it was true in this text also. I can just imagine the sons of Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, listening to the story of how their father lied in order to get the birthright. They probably heard it celebrated at times. And what happened? They learned from their father how to sin, and now they were doing the same thing to their father that their father did to their grandpa. What are your kids catching from you? Are we parents who are modeling sin? And the answer is yes, we're all sinners, but are we modeling going to God for forgiveness? But the story isn't over yet. We now come to the climax of the story, verses 25 to 28. This is God's word. Then they sat down to eat. Because that seems like the appropriate thing to do when you throw your brother in a pit. The next best thing to do is to have a meal together, right? Um, They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And we read this scene, scene number three, and we might wonder, how is this the climax, right? Things seem to be getting worse for Joseph, right? Total obedience. Then he ends up finding his brothers who throw him at a pit, and now he's getting sold into slavery. How is that the climax? But if the climax of a story is the point of greatest action or greatest suspense, then this is definitely the climax Because we see here that God is at work even when he seems absent. That God is at work even when he seems absent. Scene three, Joseph should be dead, right? His brothers were ready to kill them. Instead, they threw him in a pit And what would seem like a one in a million chance, what would seem like winning the lottery, right? Who's coming along? A bunch of Ishmaelites who are going down to Egypt, right? 
This might not have been uncommon, but we're reminded here that God orchestrates his plan using ordinary people to accomplish what he desires to accomplish. Right? It might not have been uncommon for these people to be going down to Egypt, but they were the very means that God was using in order to fulfill the dreams that he gave to Joseph at the beginning of this chapter. How was Joseph going to reign over Egypt and his brothers? Well, he had to be in Egypt. And how was he going to get to Egypt? Well, right here in the climax, we see God providentially moving him there. We think about the word providence. This is not blind luck. Joseph might have thought that he was blind when he was in a pit, especially at night. I just imagine being in a pit six feet, 16 feet deep and you can't see the hand in front of your head, right? But this was not blind luck that these people came and they sold him. This was God providing. As one theologian says, and this definition will be on the screen, the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will completely be successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. In other words, we see here in scene three that God will do whatever it takes to accomplish the purpose in which he has. And how does God successfully achieve moving Joseph to Egypt in order to save the people from famine? Well, it seemed pretty ordinary. Scene three, he acts in a way where he, he gets sold into slavery and he gets taken down to Egypt. This would get Joseph in the exact location where God wanted him to be. And I wonder when the last time we stopped for a moment and we remembered just like Joseph felt that God is at work in our lives even when he seems absent, how God might have used ordinary means and ordinary people in order to get you to the exact location that he wants you to be. As one of your pastors and just being transparent with you, I came to a moment several years ago where I looked back in my life and I, and I thought about all the times where I received the answer, no, from God. All the prayers that I prayed and God said, no. All the times where I thought that God should go on my timeline and instead he took me on a different timeline. But I came to a moment in my life where I look back on all the no's I got from God and I realize now looking back, I never wish that one of them would be a yes. Because maybe you've been in this situation before where the no from God stings at the time, but we realize that God actually knows what he is doing. It's time like these we remember the quote from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, who says, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Friends, if you're here this morning and you feel like God has abandoned you, maybe you feel like Joseph, that you're in a pit and everything is going on in the world and no one knows that you're even there. I want you to take courage from the story of Joseph, that God is present when he seems absent, 
and he is active when he seems still. But the story is still not over yet. We now move to scene four, the resolution, verses 29 to 36, and we see how this whole story pools together. This is God's word, verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Here in scene four, in the resolution, we see this whole story coming together. In scene one, we saw Joseph's full obedience. He did what his father required. And this is contrasted in scene four here, where we see Reuben, the oldest brother, his half obedience. See, in this story, it seemed like he was doing the right thing, right? They're going to kill his brother. So what did they do? Ah, don't kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. That's only half obedience. If he would have fully obeyed the law of God, he would have taken him and he would have taken him back to his father. Instead, he shows up in scene four and his brother is already gone. Half obedience is not enough. We also see here in the resolution, we're reminded that in scene two, we saw the necessity to kill sin, right? Sin that is let under the covers today will grow tomorrow. And it's fascinating to me. I would almost use the word irony, but I don't want to because I believe this is true. I believe it's actually God's word. But it was a goat that they used, that they killed a goat in order to dip the robe in, in order to take it to their father and to lie to him. And again, if we rewind a little bit and we think about Joseph's father, Jacob, how did he steal the birthright from his brother Esau? Well, he killed a goat he took the fur and put it on his arm and he had his father touch him and he lied to his father pretending that he was his brother. A lie about a dead goat is the sin that Jacob did toward Isaac. And a lie about a dead goat is the sin that his sons have done to him. This is not karma. This is the serious of sin we see in Act 4 that God takes sin serious. And the last thing we see here in the resolution in verses 29 to 36 is in the previous scene, we saw God's providence on display, right? God took Joseph out of a pit and he got traded. And if you look with me at the very end of scene three, look with me in verse 28, the very last sentence of verse 28, it says, they took Joseph to Egypt, and then if we fast forward to the very last verse 
of the resolution, verse 36, we see God's providence even more specific. It says in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And we are reminded that God provided and he got Joseph not only to the right country, but to the right household where he would be able to fulfill the dreams that he gave to him previously. We see the necessity for full obedience. We see the necessity to kill sin. And we see the necessity to trust the providence of God. So we started this sermon by asking, what is the structure? We started the sermon by answering, what is the surrounding? But we didn't answer yet, what is the significance? And now that we've worked through this text, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and Act 4, we are reminded that the world that Joseph existed in is the same world that we exist in today. It is broken And the answer to the brokenness is not found in anyone in this story. Just like the brokenness of our world is not found in any of us. Even on our best days, the days where we feel like we're believing and we're obeying the way that God calls us to do, we are more like Reuben acting in half obedience than Joseph, who although he wasn't perfect in this sense, was acting in full obedience. And we were reminded that this story, this narrative, when we pulled out and looked at the narrative in the book of Genesis, but now when we look out and we put it in the narrative of the whole Bible, we are reminded that there was one who was fully obedient. And it wasn't you and it wasn't me, but it was God's son, Jesus. So when we answer this question, what is the significance of this biblical text? We are reminded that just as Joseph was betrayed by those closest to him, his brothers, so a savior was coming into the world who would be betrayed by those closest to him, his disciples. Just as Joseph was sold to outsiders for pieces of silver, so Jesus would one day be betrayed by Judas for pieces of silver as well. Lastly, just as Joseph suffered much difficulty in order that his family and many others would be able to survive the famine and disaster that was coming to Egypt, so Jesus suffered the ultimate difficulty of being a sinless man who would die on a cross, who would rise again in order that those who would trust in him could one day overcome something more difficult and more serious than a famine in Egypt, but the punishment that we deserve due to our sin. So what's the significance of this story in Genesis 37? Well, the significance is that Joseph's suffering to save his people from famine points to Christ's suffering to save his people from their sins. Joseph's suffering to save his people from famine points to Christ's suffering to save his people from their sins. And so the question we ask as we end this morning is, do you trust Christ? We see here in this story today, there were a lot of actions happening, attempting to do the right thing. But when we look at the storyline of the Bible, we know there's only one way for us to correctly deal with our sin And it's by trusting God's son, 
Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for the reminder that we are called to follow you, but you have provided forgiveness for us even when we fall short. Father, I pray, as Pastor Bruce prayed at the beginning of this service, that you would help us to see what we don't know, that you would help us to learn what we don't yet believe. And Father, would you do a work in our hearts so that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.